This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Information technology is a catalyst for the successful delivery of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services mission. With over $11 billion in IT spending annually, a strategic vision of how HHS will deliver IT to enable mission programs, grants, and other goods and services is critical. As new technologies continue to emerge at a rapid pace, modernizing core systems at HHS increasingly relies on these new digital technologies, fundamentally changing the way information is created, preserved, and shared in a more user-friendly and accessible way. What is HHS's IT strategy? How is HHS changing the way the department does IT? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Jose Arrieta, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. My co-host from IBM is Monique Atterbridge. Jose, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Monique, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jose, what is the mission of your office? How is it organized? How does it support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services? Well, thank you for the question. Um, You know, the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Chief Information Officer kind of serves two functions. At one level, uh, we are operational support for seven or eight opt-ups, and we actually perform services for them, maybe email, uh, help desk support. At another level, I am the, as the Chief Information Officer, I am the policy official responsible for the implementation of things like uh, FATARA, MGT Act, uh, FedRAMP, and so I have a policy responsibility, and, and that involves a lot of coordination work on policy and, and different things that we're going to do across the department with some of the larger opt-devs uh, like CDC, NIH, um, CMS, to name a few. So we're kind of structured to operate at in, in those two spaces and at that two level. So at one level, we're serving the customer. We're on the ground. Uh, we're hopefully delivering value, hopefully improving service. And at another level, we're trying to s- establish a policy cadence for the way we're going to function as an agency and the way we're going to meet um, the objectives that the, the Congress has passed for uh, information technology within the federal government. So, you know, a nice follow-up is what are your responsibilities and duties as the chief information officer at HHS? It's interesting. I, You know, when you think about the chief information officer at any agency, 
the responsibilities are quite dynamic. And, and rather than talk specifically about the laws, and I'll circle back to them, it's almost like being in a Star Wars movie, really. I mean, so you have a responsibility from an acquisition perspective because Fatara says, look, you're responsible for investments, right? You have a huge responsibility for data because I mean, FISM says you're responsible for data at rest and data in transit. And oh, by the way, we want to modernize and move to cloud environment. So you have a responsibility for setting up incentive structures to getting us to move to a commercial cloud environment to uh, to lower costs. So, you know, if you take it to a tactical level and, and you actually think about it, you know, you, you need to understand acquisition. You need to understand budget formulation and execution. You need to understand technology. You need to be really good at customer service. Um, so it's almost like being in a Star Wars movie where you're getting shot at in 4D and you're flying out of a cave and the cave door is closing at the same time and you got to kind of invert to fit through the space that's left to actually get out. Um, so it's a very dynamic position, uh, and it's a very interesting position where you you are interacting with only almost every facet of what we do in the federal government uh, in order to to drive success. It's a, it's almost like you just alluded to one of the elements uh, that I considered in my next question, which is what are your top three management challenges, and how have you sought to address them? Yeah, I think you know it's it's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, lately, and it's, it's no matter, regardless of who you are and what your priorities are, I think in this day and age, you got to be good at a couple things for the organization to be successful. So, regardless of my priorities, uh, regardless if I'm working at Pepsi or working at HHS, I got to be really good at talent management. I got to be able to bring on good people. I got to be able to make sure that they're engaged. Uh, and I got to be able to regularly bring on new people because really good people are going to move on. I got to be really good at partnerships um, uh, with external organizations. Um, I have to be really good at communication with my workforce in particular, right? So, and, and, and then I have to be really good at the service level from a customer service perspective. So, regardless of what you do, if you're in a function where you're serving other folks, you have, to, regardless of your priorities, you have to be good at those four things. I think in order to be successful, uh, and so when I think about the the fundamental or the the base that we want to build in order to be a successful CIO, I think we have to focus on creating that capability, creating that flexibility, and being really good at those things because those are the things that help an organization pivot, help an organization shift, help an organization take on new challenges, help an organization evolve. What what I'd be interested to know is what surprised you is your time at at HHS? Well, I've only been the CIO for four or uh, five months now. And uh, you know, if you talked to my wife, she would, she would, she would have. She said, "If I knew what I knew now, I would have told you not to take the job." I, 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 uh, I think. It's always fun, right? I think what I was most surprised about uh, when I took the job. Well, two things. One, I am very surprised about how relevant. Uh, the acquisition experience is and how important it is to the role CIO, at least for me, at least for me. Okay, that's number one. The other thing uh, that I'm extremely, that I was almost in awe of uh, is how dynamic the function of the CIO is. Uh, And going back to that Star Wars example of just kind of having multiple responsibilities, it's almost like a spider web and it all interconnects in some way. Uh, and it, it, it's very interesting because it's almost like putting together a puzzle. Um, and, but there's no picture for how to put it together. 
uh, right? Uh, and so you got to start with the corners. You got to start with the fundamental corners and then fill the rest in because it's just a white puzzle, a white sheet of paper, and you're you're trying to put it together into a puzzle. So I think that those are the two most surprising things. Now, my hair has gone gray. Wow. I've, I've definitely just developed more gray hair. Um, and I like to tell my wife, even though I'm gray, I mean, you, I'm, you know. But so that that's been the most yeah that's been the most uh, surprising. Well, I, I like the uh, the picture of the puzzle that you were creating and, how, and figuring it out. Is, is that a similar path that you took for your career path as you tried to figure out you know where you wanted to go and how you oh, wanted to move forward? Thank you on the career path. I think um, you know my goal when I was a young man and in college was to be a grad assistant basketball coach and then maybe an athletic director. Right. Uh, and I'll never forget, I was in the gym at uh, 6 in the morning or 7 in the morning, the day of 9-11. And um, we were doing these drills, basketball drills. I used to work out in the morning with our starting with one of our, with our point guard. And the coach came down and said a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And at that time, I, I didn't have television because when you're a college athlete, you really don't have a ton of time. So I didn't have television. You didn't read too much of the newspaper. It was lifting weights. It was... Uh, and that that really changed the course of my life. And I thought, you know, I want to go and try to do something that will impact society, where I'll have an impact. So I'm going to move to Washington, D.C. Uh, and what I've done throughout my career is is kind of follow my passions. Um, and, and it's helped me kind of piece together an experience. And I focused more on the journey itself uh, than the end outcome. Um, you know, so when I first moved here, I coached my own team. We traveled the United States 11 months out of the year. We practiced two days a week. We traveled three weekends a month. And that was a very uh, good experience for me to, as a leader. I mean, we had a functioning budget. Um, you, you're developing these kids, and some of them are playing college basketball now. Um, and when you're, if you focus on the journey, especially in the federal government space, you become attracted to mission spaces. You know, so I've done some work in fourth-party logistics supporting DOD. I've done some work in identifying terror threats around the world and supporting uh, you know, DHS. doesn't work on small business because small business is important and it's a driver. And when you follow your passions, uh, you really can kind of enjoy the journey. And, and it is like I don't know what the outcome is. I don't know what the picture will be on the puzzle at the end of the journey. Uh, but I will continue to uh, follow things that are near and dear to my heart or that uh, are something that I believe in. Hmm. That's a great uh, – that goes right into the next question, which is uh, how do you lead? And uh, what are the characteristics in your mind, given your background and your career path, uh, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? Yeah, I mean, you know, my dad um, uh, My dad runs a uh, small company and uh, started it when I was eight years old. And, you know, he used to tell me, and I, uh, we, it was a mining company, and I would spend the entire summer, you know, 6 in the morning, 6 p.m., I'd be at the quarry. I'd be helping with different aspects of the quarry. So I kind of grew up watching him build this business. Uh, and he used to always tell me, he's like, you know, Jose, the, the way that a business works is that you take risk. The way that it take business works is you make an investment and you make a small investment and you know within a month or two in, in that business, right? You know within a month or two if it's going to work or not. And and then you got to have the discipline to if it's not going to work, walk away from it. And if it's going to work, you know, continue to invest in it because the numbers get bigger and, and, and it becomes more complex. Uh, and I think as a leader – uh, in the federal government, uh, we we have to take risk. I cannot go and look at the definition of what a technology should be used for and try to implement it on the basis of that definition. I have to look at the culture that exists and, and take a risk to try and change the culture 
And if we're maybe using a new technology tool and it works to facilitate that outcome, uh, then that is a side benefit uh, and, and, and that facilitates the process. But, if, but I have to focus on culture first and not to downplay the importance of technology, but culture is much more important than technology itself. And, and if you're not willing to take risks, uh, you're not going to be able to drive any level of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I'd rather fail 100 times uh, in a week. I'd rather fail 20 times in a day. I'd rather try a number of things and fail uh, and learn along the way than plan to try something and, and try one thing every three weeks and fail, right? Because the, it, the more times you get a chance to hit the ball, the more likely you're going to actually hit it and have success. But you have to be comfortable with risk. You have to be – you have to accept risk. You have to accept that there are – that in taking risks, that will create conflict. And and conflict is a good thing, you know. And I, I say this when I describe artificial intelligence and I, I always tell my wife this. It's like, you know, if you ask somebody are they in a happy marriage, um, you would say – you could maybe come up with some criteria and say, do you say good morning every morning? Do you kiss your wife before you go to work? Do you guys eat dinner together every day? And if you do those things, you're happy. But I would argue that if you do those things and you have a really good fight, you know, once in a while, then you're truly happy because you have the passion for one another that you're actually going to argue and, and disagree. And and that that you have to accept the fact that conflict will occur when you take risk and that conflict is a really good thing uh, as long as you're willing to openly talk about it. What is HHS's IT strategy? We will ask Jose Arietta, Chief Information Officer at HHS when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Our world is no longer one of simple problems. Even when the task calls for a discrete effort, it is situated within a complex system. In government, the resources needed to properly address these wicked complex problems often transcend the capacity of any single agency. How can the complexity formula help us tackle complex challenges? And how can we translate opportunity into action? I'll explore these questions and more with David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. David, first off, I'd like to talk about complexity. What is complexity? And what are the conditions that make something complex? Well, we talk about uh, complexity as a class of challenge type. Um, and really, we, we like to define it by contrasting it with simple and complicated challenges. So simple and complicated challenges are basically solved problems. Um, there's a known solution. It's a matter of executing a known checklist. And you get repeatable and predictable results when you do that. Um, but when you're dealing with something that's complex, it's not in that category at all. It's categorically different. Um, it's different every time. It's nonlinear. There is no checklist. And so it's very different 
um, from those problems that we can solve just by executing a checklist. And David, in the book, you illustrate um, the differences between the complicated and the complex. Could you elaborate on that? So, uh, for example, um, installing an accounting system, you'd probably say that's complicated. I, I can hire somebody who's done it many times before and they'll do for me what they've done for many other people. Whereas taking out cost um, is going to be a very unique kind of challenge every time I confront it based on whatever organization I'm in, whatever situation I'm in, the time, the technology and everything else that's going on that day. Um, instilling you know, procedures for IT is probably complicated, a step-by-step way to engage and activate IT on a problem versus a challenge like IT modernization, which would be uh, far more complex than that in terms of the moving pieces and the scope and scale and uniqueness of the challenge to every uh, system that tries to get at that. Uh, David, can complex challenges be solved with the tools used to solve complicated tasks? There are known solutions. They can be solved time and time again by basically executing a known set of steps. But complicated challenges require some level of expertise to execute those steps. So the way that you go about solving a complicated challenge is either you have the expertise or you find an expert and you hire them to solve it for you. They might have to interview a few people to configure their known solution, um, but they will solve it for you. But when you're dealing with something that's complex, you're dealing with something that's essentially new each time you confront it. Um, so a growth challenge you know, is a complex challenge and you might have gone through something related to growth 10 years ago, but it's going to be very different this time. So if you try to reach out and find an expert in growth, um, they're going to be just as confounded by the new situation as you are. And in fact, um, more confounded because they know less about your situation. So when you try to go about solving something that's complex, by using the complicated approach of engaging an expert, uh, you're actually introducing all sorts of additional challenges into the scenario, and you're just not going to get at solutions. And as a follow-up, David, why does complexity require leaders to develop and adopt new ways of thinking and problem-solving? So really, we talk about the need to adopt an abundance mindset when it comes to the talent that's required to solve something complex. But as you think about your complex challenge, you really need to take on a mindset that, you know, the answers lie inside and around my organization within my ecosystem. And it's just a matter of recognizing that I have an abundance of talent that I can tap into. Um, I don't need to outsource this to someone else. And in fact, outsourcing this to someone else means that um, they're going to get really nicely steeped in my challenge um, they're going to figure something out for me, but my people are not going to understand or believe that that's necessarily the right solution. And that's why um, we see real struggles with execution on those kinds of solutions that have been developed, let's say, by a uh, management consultant who may have developed an excellent solution, but again, without um, the co-creation of the people who are going to be you know, required to execute it. More information on this and other Center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. 
To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jose Arrieta, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. My co-host from IBM is Monique Outerbridge. HHS has a unique mission to enhance and protect the health and well-being of Americans, and information technology really plays an integral role in the department meeting that mission. So I would like to take some time and get a sense of your IT strategy. Could you tell us what your key priorities are? Yeah, so I think that uh, when we think about priorities, so we, we talked earlier in the session about creating kind of a fundamental to implement priorities. And we, we, we have a few priority areas that we're focused on. One, we want to use commercial cloud as much as possible, and, and we want to use it so that we can create access to and leverage our data assets. Um, and these are in no particular order. Uh, two, we want to get better at delivering service to our customers. So in the in the operational role that we execute in, we want to we want to develop a way to actually deliver better outcomes for our customers at lower cost. And what I mean by that is we want to be more efficient and effective as a CIO shop. And in being more infi- efficient and effective as a CIO shop, we we hope that we can allow for more capital to be spent on the mission space versus the function of IT support. So look at ways that we can deliver uh, better customer outcomes. I think, again, no particular order. I think we want to uh, improve the cyber hygiene of the agency and then also in, invest in ways to, so that our the folks that work in cybersecurity can focus their time on the critical thinking skills associated with cybersecurity rather than spend their uh, time on some, some of the process work. So improve cyber hygiene and awareness, but also make some strategic investments to create more time for critical thinking in the cybersphere. And I think the last area is we want to test emerging technology. Uh, and again, I mean, it, it is important to take risk and to use risk as a stimulator uh, to engage your culture and to allow your culture to kind of imagine what the future could be. Uh, and so we're not – we're testing emerging technology so that we can kind of develop a direct relationship with the culture of HHS, specifically wherever IT touches the mission space. Uh, and we can use that to hopefully better enable our mission in the future. And we know every test isn't going to work, uh, but we think that that's important. So those are kind of my four uh, uh, priority areas. You know, under underlying them, are there any – um, specific internal drivers or external trends that kind of shape and inform these priorities? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, the legal framework that's put in, that is in place to actually kind of govern the CIO function is, is FATARA, uh, it's FedRAMP, uh, obviously FISMA plays an important role, and then it's the MGT Act, right? Yep. 
And if you think about it, those the, the legal framework and the tools exist to to incentivize and empower agencies to modernize. So what does Fatara say? Fatara says, look, CIOs should have some say in the IT investments of uh, an organization. And, and, and President's Management Agenda says, hey, we want you to move to cloud. We want you to move to cloud. FedRAMP is what? It's secure cloud, right? So you're empowered, CIO, to have some visibility and help drive us to cloud. And then here's FedRAMP, which is a secure cloud, uh, creating secure cloud, right? And then MGT Act says, look, if you modernize, right, if you use any of the emerging technologies listed in MD1722, uh, blockchain, artificial intelligence, machine learning, autonomous systems. And you either improve cybersecurity uh, or lower costs or or use any of those technologies. Any savings that you generate, you can reinvest in in your mission space in technology. And FISMA says, while you're doing this, make sure you protect data at rest and you protect data uh, in transit. And that's important. CIO is responsible for all of that. So the legal framework, I think, is 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 in place to drive modernization efforts across the federal government, uh, and I think that's a mandate both in the in the prior administration as well as this administration. And I think that's kind of from a government perspective what is driving us uh, to execute. And part of that driving to execute on this IT modernization, specifically with cloud migration, and this may be a little unfair to ask you this with just the four months you've been there, but has HHS figured out how it plans to attack uh, meeting this mandate? Yeah, I mean, I think one what, what I've realized in the four months uh, that I've been at HHS is is cloud migration is it comes in multiple shapes and sizes there there are many approaches to migrating to commercial cloud environments so it's one thing to say we're moving to the cloud but i think it's another thing to have a discussion specifically and tactically as to how you move to the cloud are we taking a managed service approach are we going to move our data assets to a commercial cloud environment and build containerized microservices? How do we make a decision as to what approach is better? And I think what we've been trying to do in the CIO uh, Council uh, is kind of have those discussions. And, and, and instead of just imp- uh, encouraging customers to move to cloud, have a discussion about the different ways that you can kind of move to a commercial cloud environment and how you can do that uh, to add value to your mission space. And I think that's the approach that will be will add the most value for us to moving to cloud. I, I also think something else, and I'm going to take your question in a little bit different direction. It is important to put a face mm. on the mission space. It, it, it is important to do that because when you talk about technology, sometimes you forget about the fact that technology impacts people. And, I, and I'm going to I'm going to give you an example right now, and I'm making this up, but. I want you to imagine that uh, you're a, you're a single mom and and or man, but you know you're a single individual and you're living in uh, southwestern New York in a in a, a middle class town, and you recently went through a divorce. Uh, your kids left and went to college, and and they didn't come home. They went and found jobs, and you're very lonely. Uh, and maybe you're a nurse and you hurt your back, and in hurting your back, you were prescribed opioids. And you started to take those opioids, and they became a source of comfort because there was not a lot of stuff to do in that community. Uh, and you became addicted. And, and maybe you got to the point where you were overtaking your opioids. You were taking 22, 25 Vicodin a day. Uh, and your significant other works all day and is never home. And he, com- he comes home one day, and he finds you immobile in a chair. 
and and you say you think you're coming down with a cold and you're going to lay in that chair for the next few days to recover, except in two days you're not even making any sense. So he scoops you up, takes you to the hospital in a rural location in the United States, and the hospital says, yeah, we think um, – we think that you have pneumonia. We're going to put her on an IV and you think your wife will be better in 12 hours. But in 12 hours, 90% of the major organs in your body uh, have completely shut down. Uh, you are intubated fully. Your one lung has collapsed and you have full-blown sepsis, something that was identifiable at the moment of a cough. You have full-blown sepsis. And so the, the, the doctor from the city hospital that you were life-flighted to decides to put you on a cocktail of, of, of drugs uh, to keep you alive. Because there's only seven strands of sepsis or eight. And and so seven of the drugs are killing you and one of them is actually keeping you alive. And then they send a sample of your data. They take the data readings off of you and the, the sample information. They send it off and hopefully you can survive for two days until you can get a readout of what type of sepsis you have. At which point we will give you the medicine that you need for that strand of sepsis as well as another cocktail of medicine so that you can recover from the seven medicines that were essentially killing you. Now – when you think about it, why is technology important to that? Well, let's say that you had uh, mental health issues, and but you didn't have the ability to share that with anybody because you were embarrassed. Well, what if we created an, an app to, so that you could share that information readily and openly in the event of an emergency? What if that app included your prescription information so we knew that you were regularly taking uh, Vicodin? What if we could have, through a data exchange, had insight into the strand of sepsis you had more quickly? And that would have been available in the rural hospital, so you never actually had to go into a full-blown coma. Technology uh, can enable some of those changes, and every day American people are struggling from those types of things. And I think it's important that we put a face on the solutions that technology can drive for other people. So I, I think that's very important. I think when you talk about cloud, it sounds cool. When you tie cloud to how it could improve data exchange, so a woman that is dying of sepsis could understand what strand she has quicker, uh, I think that becomes a very powerful message, and, and I think technology can enable that type of solution. No, that's very powerful. And when you, it's good when you hear government officials actually continue to connect to their mission and what it is that they're there to do. And I was thinking about um, one of the first things you said when we spoke earlier about the importance of your role with the whole acquisition process, you know, how important that is. So when you're uh, finding the right support system, uh, whatever vendor, small, large, whatever, to support this cloud modernization vision. Is there a tactic or some type of different approach you want to take through a procurement process to ensure they connect with you and the mission? Yeah, we've tried a couple different approaches. Um, the first approach that we've taken is small proofs. Uh, I'm going to award a contract for $250,000, and I'm going to have you solve a problem or recommend a solution to a problem. Uh, or, or maybe map out a series of business processes and make a recommendation. And if you make a good recommendation, I'll spend another couple hundred thousand dollars and I'll have you actually implement that rec recommendation and test it through using human-centered design. Um, and so what we've done from a contracting perspective is tried to move up the value chain in very quick increments. So we had a project that we started on April 17th of 2018. By June, we had a series of recommendations and had a mapped out business process. We made a decision in June to actually build out a series of capabilities for a couple different personas of people that we were trying to service. Uh, in October, we were ready to actually test the infrastructure. Uh, that We already had over 100 human Center design sessions where we had input on th those three different personas, and we were ready to test the infrastructure. And we were able to go through the ATO process. 
Um, so think about it from April 17th of 2018 until uh, December 10th of 2018, we were able to you know, build a functioning blockchain capability, test a series of nodes that were interacting with one another on dummy data. We were able to build a persona uh, for industry partners, for program officials. So we wanted to lessen the burden on industry partners. We wanted to empower program managers with information they needed to do their job. We wanted to empower contracting professionals with the information they needed to negotiate better prices paid in terms and conditions. We were able to build out that application layer so that we could kind of get buy-in from the workforce that, yeah, these things are valuable for us in the way we do our job. And we spent six, seven hundred thousand dollars doing that. Now, even if all of that failed, mm -hmm. we fundamentally changed our workforce by having a hundred human-centered design sessions and having them think through the way that they do business. So it was, a, it, even if all of that functionally, we decided it wouldn't work, it fundamentally changed the way that our workforce thinks about their job and how much they communicate with one another. And, and we actually got the ATO in December. Um, so I think that that approach is is a good way to constantly – it's a new way that we operate to constantly change culture as we're evolving to what our future state is. But it's not saying that this is the future state and if you don't fit within this framework, uh, then you shouldn't be using this approach. We're allowing flexibility in how the framework evolves where we're not, we're not executing to a definition. I don't want my child to be very good at test taking. I want my child to be very good at solving problems. Right, and and I think that's the approach we're taking from an acquisition perspective. Now we're pivoting beyond that. I love your question for this reason. So now we're saying is if you're Microsoft, if you're Adobe, if you're Amazon, if you're Oracle, if you're a large company and you invest in R and D, why are you investing in R and D in a? And I'm not picking on people from Pennsylvania because I'm Pennsylvania. Why are you investing in an R and D test at your shop in Pennsylvania? Why don't you take those R and D funds and invest with us? in our modernization in initiatives. And if I structure a solicitation in that way mm -hmm. and, I, and, and, and I give you an opportunity to, if you bid on something and you win mm -hmm. and you invest with us in a solution, I give you an opportunity to be the first in the world to deliver a solution at scale. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good opportunity for you when you go to work with the other governments and private sector companies you work with. It's a great opportunity for me and that's the way government and industry uh, should work together. And so I think that's the next evolution of our approach to, to modernizing and, and, to, and to kind of trying to take a modern approach to the way we do acquisition. It's interesting. There's some folks I've talked to who are in the uh, CIO shop and leading CIOs, and they think that IT modernization is not enough, that we need to create a dynamic IT environment that evolves as requirements evolve. From your perspective, Jose, given that you bring acquisition experience into the IT shop, what are the implications of going beyond simply modernizing into transforming? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when you think about modernization, right, you think about from an IT perspective, I think most people think about modern technology, using modern technology. Um, but I have a question for you. You know, I mean, think about it. In 1990 or 1995, when the cell phone came out, did it change the culture and the way that you behave when somebody put a phone in your hand mm -hmm. and you didn't have to go home and grab the phone that was attached to the wall <laughs> yeah. and you had everybody's phone number written in pencil on the wall and, and your parents hated that, right? It changed the way that you behaved and interact. So I believe that you have to allow a culture to evolve and modernize the way technology solutions 
drive their business. And you have to invert that. Um, and, and human-centered design is such an important point to that. And because in a large enterprise uh, like HHS, it's different than being able to say, well, now I can carry around my phone. That adds a lot of value to me. In a large enterprise, you're, tra- you're changing the interconnectivity in the way thousands of people work together. And the only way to do that is either model their existing workflow with modern technology, which we, we all know you're not – and every CIO I think would agree with this. You may not always get the best bang for your buck in doing that. Or engage them in an active way so that they can reshape how they work, right? And, and it's a complete mindset shift. We're no longer kind of – we're no longer depicting what we want. We're no longer looking up the definition of blockchain or artificial intelligence in Webster's Dictionary and then teaching people about that definition. Uh, what we're doing is we're getting an understanding of the business process and then we're talking about maybe some of the technical capabilities that exist maybe using artificial intelligence uh, and then we're doing tests and seeing if it actually delivers value to them. And what are they doing as they do that? They're changing the way they work and think and it's not because we told them. It's because they just experienced that. And I, and I think – so it, it isn't enough because culture change is just as important as modern technology. Yeah. I mean it's a good transition into the role that HHS plays in protecting personal data. I'd like to, to talk about your IT strategy around cyber attacks or uh, IT security. Can you tell us what you're doing in that area? Yeah. I think the, the first thing we're doing, right – so first of all, cybersecurity is extremely important, uh, and at the heart of cybersecurity, it, it's protecting data, uh, making sure that uh, data is extremely uh, is, is secure and separate of the workflow. And I think that's an important key thing. And as you think about it, the first thing you have to do is identify the high value assets that exist uh, throughout the agency. And then at an attribute level, get an understanding of what data you have and how are you going to protect that data. Uh, we have so many data assets. If we tried to secure all of our data assets, uh, it would be extremely expensive. So let's focus on high-value assets and let's focus on specific attributes associated with, of data within those high-value assets and let's, and let's try to secure them. Now, securing them may be securing them in their existing uh, – in the existing environment that they are in. But securing them may also mean moving the data assets to a commercial cloud environment, uh, indexing them so they are available and we have access, creating maybe an attestation layer. Um, and then in some instances, maybe we use containerized microservices as a way to actually get access to a data set that we need and use it when we need it. Um, and that allows us to be secure because we're working through an attestation layer. We're, we're segmenting data assets and indexing them at a cer- in a certain way. And then we're accessing them when we need to use them. It's kind of like if you went home and instead of going to Jimmy John's to buy a sandwich, you made your own sandwich. What do you do? You open up the refrigerator door and you get out the things that you need to make the sandwich. You put it together and make the sandwich and then you put everything away, right? Um, and, and so that's kind of the approach uh, that we think uh, is the best way uh, to modernize and secure data. Focus on your high-value assets. Focus on protecting data at the attribute level. Um, separate data from business process and access data when needed to execute outcomes. Uh, and I think if we if we focus on those fundamentals, uh, we'll be able to uh, provide and meet the security and privacy requirements that um, that we're responsible for as an agency. Uh, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, it's something that you have to commit to and continue to evolve to. 
How is HHS leveraging emerging technologies to meet its missions? We will ask its CIO, Jose Arrieta, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on the Federal News Network. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jose Arrieta, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. My co-host from IBM is Monique Outerbridge. Jose, would you elaborate on your efforts to leverage um, emerging technologies such as AI and blockchain to deliver IT throughout the department, and what emerging technologies hold the most promise for helping you do that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, so our approach, and I'll start with maybe the blockchain and then I'll talk about the recurrent neural network, which is uh, the basis for artificial intelligence and, and deep learning. I think from a blockchain perspective, and it's interesting, there'll be a lot of folks that disagree kind of with our approach. Blockchain is a distributed ledger um, uh, that distributes power and, and authority and data to endpoints, right? And so what we've done, uh, a lot of folks would say, well, you're not executing blockchain because your blockchain is just internal. But what we've done is created the ability with an investment in, in building a blockchain infrastructure to evolve and allow for a decentralized series of nodes to interact with one another, right? Because if I, again, if I go to the definition of blockchain and I try to implement it from the top down, it's a significant investment and it's a significant change. But if I, if, I, if I take a blockchain, I index data from $24.2 billion in annual spend, I make it available on a series of nodes for 20,000 contracting professionals, and I start to open those nodes up so that industry partners can have access to their data and their information through a network noted environment, then what do I have the ability to do? I have the ability to tokenize and use tokens to actually incentivize certain types of behaviors, right? So what we what we tried to do with the blockchain initially is create an attestation layer uh, that allows for access to a data set um, and then use a containerized microservices architecture to actually build and automate the acquisition lifecycle on top of that. 
but what we're doing with the attestation layers, we're storing data attributes in three different locations, right? The human brain remembers how to shoot a basketball in one part. It transactionally remembers your phone number in another part, and it remembers the smell of popcorn in a third part. And that is what gives you the ability to learn because memory is segmented in that way. So we, what we wanted with blockchain is the ability to separate out memory at an attribute level, but remember that in some instances, each of those memories are connected and then have the flexibility to actually forget one of those memories to do something in the future. Uh, so that's been uh, kind of our approach to blockchain is, is decentralizing uh, data, making it available. Is it, a, is it purely a, a blockchain as if it's described in Webster's Dictionary? No, but it gives us the ability to evolve towards that in the future. And that's the approach we've taken. With the neural, with, we've built a couple uh, recurrent neural networks, and I'll, I'll just talk about one of them, which I find fascinating, right? So imagine if I wanted to determine if a contract was inherently governmental or not. Well, typically we would force the statement of work through a process of review and somebody would make a decision based on criteria established by GAO. But what if I could use natural language processing to read 42,000 statements of work or 10,000 statements of work? And then I know I can't do predictive analytics on unstructured text data, so I take each of the words in those sentences and I turn them into numbers and I create vectors. And then I push those vectors into a predictive model on the basis of what GAO says is inherently governmental or not. And now what can I do? I can focus my energy on, out of the 10,000 contracts, I can focus my energy on 100 contracts that maybe are inherently governmental based on the recurrent neural network and how it analyzed that information. And you say, well, why a recurrent neural network? Well, we constantly award contracts and we constantly do statements of work. So we're constantly adding new data. Uh, and I can provide that insight. And, and you say, well, how does that work with the blockchain? Well, it's a microservice that is built off the data that's indexed on the blockchain. And we're using the hashing mechanism on the blockchain to remember the parameters associated with each data attribute and what it means to the overall model when we determine inherently governmental or not. That becomes extremely powerful because now I can read through 42,000 or 10,000 statements of work in real time and I can say, you know what, Michael? Focus on these 20. These ones are 90 percent. 90% we believe that they're inherently governmental. Mm. And I think just to take it one step further, then I can start to read maybe labor category descriptions and I can start to anchor those labor category descriptions to government PDs. And when I do that, what did I do? I said this government PD and this labor category, the guy's kind of doing the same thing. And then I look at another company's labor category and I say, yeah, even though they describe it different, it's anchored to the same government PD. Now I can do an apples-to-apples apples comparison of service pricing, professional service pricing, which a lot of folks would tell you is really complex and not possible. Maybe. But for a very low investment, we can now test that capability. And I'll tell you, having our workforce think through that with those tools and looking at the outcomes they're getting – the investment in having them do that versus create another bureaucratic process that everything rose through is actually educating them as we go. So even if it didn't work, it's educating them as we go. Um, we, we were able to uh, do that in three weeks, the professional services uh, analysis of professional services contracts to determine if they're inherently governmental or not and actually provide uh, that insight. And, and I think that's that's very powerful. So. That's the way that we're trying to use emerging technology, and the benefit is much more than just a savings that you can identify. We're actually doing the same thing with licenses. We're reading through license information. We're 
vectorizing the words that we read. We're pushing it into a predictive model and we're clustering that information and we're saying, well, this is interesting. Name a company. I won't pick on one, but name a company. This is interesting. Look at the differential in pricing. Mm. And we read the terms and conditions. So we know that the terms and conditions at this price and the terms and conditions at this price, high and low, are the same. Why is that? And with that information, you can do what? You can go and maybe get a better price. Uh, our approach has been to focus on the back office uh, because we think that there's an opportunity to drive savings. And what does return on investment do? It, it helps you continue to invest. So uh, we've tried to focus there. No, that's that's great. That actually follows on uh, to a question I have regarding database analytics, uh, which to me is an example of what you just walked through. And have you been able to get the rest of your leadership and other staff to get on board with this new way of looking at how you can drive database analytics? Yeah, I mean, we've we so we've done this for professional services. Uh, we've identified what we think is maybe a hundred million dollars in savings opportunities. We've. And again, it doesn't mean that we're right, but it means that we're stimulating and creating a discussion that could not have been had before. It doesn't mean that it's perfect, but we're stimulating and creating a discussion that we could not have before. It doesn't mean that you couldn't come in and argue that we should have taken a different approach, but we can argue till we're blue in the face. We're, we're actually creating movement within our organization. That's the role of a leader. Um, and so we've also uh, – we, we identified about 2 percent of our total IT spend from a license perspective and we've identified significant savings there. Uh, so it's, we're using it to create discussion amongst the leadership on, on how to do acquisition to acquire emerging technologies, on how to possibly save money based on a different look at a very large data set that we have, on, on how to educate and develop our talent. Because we just took them through a process where they're learning something that's really interesting and really stimulating along the way. And it's a real-world case study. So I think that it it's less about creating buy-in and more about, you know, I took my son the other day uh, and my daughter and we went hiking. And it's interesting, you know, as because they're not in the woods. They live in the city. You know, I, they didn't grow up in the woods like me in Pennsylvania. And, and I took them uh, hiking and we saw a deer kind of crossing the path. And it was interesting to see their reaction because they were experiencing something. They were on a journey. They didn't read it in a book. They didn't read it in a dictionary. They didn't read it in Wikipedia with a picture. I almost said encyclopedia. They, <laughs> they actually experienced it. And, and, that's, and that is much better for the development of uh, my children, I believe, but also for a culture and a workforce. Mm-hmm. You know, switching gears to, but picking up on that, you know, um, how are you using... Uh, and leveraging partnerships and collaboration to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and execute on your mission? And it could be internal or external. Yeah, I think we, uh, my perspective have all, has always been, since I've been at DHS, to have an open and regular dialogue with the industry base about uh, their capabilities and the capabilities that they see in the marketplace. Uh, it, it has also been to, to challenge uh, the industry base during that dialogue so that I fully understand those capabilities because I think if, if you're not, if you're not uh, engaging back, if you're, if you're just listening, then you're not learning, right? So to, to actually do that, I think that has probably been the single most important thing that I've done throughout my career is the regular and open engagement with industry partners has helped me learn a lot that would have taken me a long time sitting in a classroom to learn, but that I got to learn from some of the foremost experts on the face of the earth that work here right in Washington, D.C. and deliver on some amazing missions. So I think from an external perspective, that is extremely important. I think 
coming on shows uh, like this, and, and we've been extremely transparent. If you Google search the work we've done at HHS, we're not hiding from it. There's there's folks that say, it'll, there's folks at the beginning that said it will never work. There's folks that maybe don't think it's the right approach now, but we've been completely transparent. I think being transparent about what you're doing, being open to have that dialogue and kind of learn why other people think it's a good idea or a bad idea helps you grow as an agency, helps you learn. Uh, it also lets people know where you're going. So from an external perspective, extremely important and and one and, and had a significant impact on my career. I think from an internal perspective, you know, I, I went down – and I'll just give you an example. I went down to CDC once, uh, well, last year, and uh, as the CIO, and they gave me a tour of – and I'm going to butcher the name, but it was essentially their infectious disease center. And the gentleman that was touring me, the scientists, the group of scientists were so excited about what they were doing. And they said, you know – I said, explain it to me. He said, you know, Jose – Here's an example. We noticed that a bunch of people were getting sick when they had open heart surgery in the United States, and we couldn't figure out why. So we went into the different hospitals that they were getting sick in in different parts of the country, and we looked at the operating room, and we started to look at different pieces of it. And what they found was that a machine that is used to heat and cool the heart when they take the heart out of the body, they take the heart out of the body, and there's a machine there that's, that's used to keep the heart at a certain temperature so that it can you know, stay functioning – that that machine was made in a play, another part of the supply chain that was put together in another part of the world, and there was a bug in the fan. And, 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 you know, hot, cold condensation, right? And they were able to track back and identify that that bug existed, work through the supply chain to eliminate that uh, to save folks' lives. Like, here's the thing. As a technology guy, uh, as an acquisition person, uh, as a program official, if you don't go and, and touch and feel the mission space, how, how can you support the mission space? And you have to actually walk on the ground, understand the environment, uh, get a sense for the, the pace at which they work and, and how passionate they are about their mission and what do they need from an informational perspective to actually do their jobs. So I think that's the other approach that I'm hopefully taking as the CIO as it relates to internal engagement is actually sit down, get to know the players, get to know how they do their job, get to know how they work, get to know what they're most concerned with, understand their mission as deeply as I can, and then be able to have empathy for it so that hopefully we can deliver a level of support that, that helps them achieve their mission. And, and I think those, from an internal perspective, I think that's uh, the single most important thing. So as you continue to look towards the future, um, what other key issues do you think that other federal CIOs or just the federal IT community are probably going to have to contend with over the next few years? Yeah, I think that uh, the role of the CIO um, will continually uh, become harder. I, I think that uh, the importance of understanding the function of acquisition will become more and more relevant to the role of the CIO. I think more uh, services that government delivery will be based on and reimagined uh, using technology. And it, it's going to be important that the CIO community uh, can adjust to that um, and service their customers more quickly. And it's going to require a constant evolution of the individuals serving as the CIO and the teams of people that, that support the CIO function of agencies. And that's going to be very hard. It, it'll so increased investment in dollars means increased use of the acquisition lifecycle to get the outcome that you want. 
Um, and it, it's really going to strain individuals that serve in the CIO community. So I think that the key to preparing for that is to, from a workforce perspective, is to dynamically engage our workforce so they understand the, the holistically uh, what it's like to work in government, not only at a program level, uh, but as a technologist, as an acquisition professional, uh, as a small business executive. Because in order to navigate that, you need to actually understand how all the strings work together. Uh, and as you know from your time in government, Michael, and as you know from all the interviews that you've done, uh, they don't always perfectly align. You know, if, I, if you think about like the function of acquisition, right, it's the intersection of procurement law. It's the intersection of industry. It's the intersection of socioeconomic objectives, right? And it's the inter intersection of mission. Mm -hmm. If I did everything for the mission, it could bump up against a law or some socioeconomic objectives. Uh, I don't just contract with myself. I contract with industry partners, so I got to have some level of engagement there. And oh, by the way, we have these socioeconomic responsibilities that we have to take into account. They don't perfectly align. In order to make a business decision as to how to get the outcome you want and to take those four things into account, you actually have to understand them. And you actually have to understand how they impact the work that is done. Uh, and I think every single year that goes on, uh, the CIO has, uh, in the federal government will have to become more and more aware of that uh, because more money will be spent on IT. And that will require more uh, contracts going through the acquisition lifecycle. Uh, that will require an understanding of procurement law, an understanding of socioeconomic objectives of agencies, an open dialogue with the industrial base, and a, and a detailed understanding of the mission space. Uh, and, and that's going to be – you have to commit to develop those skills and understandings. Well, before I let you go, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's public service well, – public service is important uh, to me uh, because – you, you're touching everyday people in their lives. Uh, when you think about the woman that I told the story about who was suffering from an opioids addiction and, and almost died uh, and survived, uh, that's actually a true story. And uh, I think that when you know even in a small way that you can have a positive impact on an individual like that, there's nothing more satisfying. And so if you want to have an impact on, like that, on folks like that and you have an interest in people – then public service is probably a career choice that you'll really benefit um, and enjoy. You know, I was—I had a lot of people put a ton of time into me as a basketball player when I was growing up, and I, I always wanted to give that back and put time in as a coach. Uh, public service is very similar, uh, right, because you can help people evolve and grow. And, and I, there's nothing more satisfying uh, other than, you know, maybe uh, raising my own kids, which the bald spot is actually from my kids. The gray hair is from the CIO job. So, <laughs> All right, well— Thank you for joining us today, but more importantly, Jose, uh, Monique and I uh, would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time and I uh, look forward to uh, working with you guys again. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Jose Arietta, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. My co-host today from IBM has been Monique Outerbridge. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.